Good morning. Good morning. We are whittled down a little bit. Nice to see you. Today, I want to dedicate my words to trees. Trees had a very important role in Buddha's life. He was born in a grove of trees. His mother uh, held on to a, an overhanging branch. And it was, it's told that he was born out of his mother's side as she was holding on to this branch in a grove of trees. And he actually passed away um, between two sal trees and he, he deliberately asked to be taken there uh, just prior to his entering Nirvana. And of course he was <clears throat> enlightened, awakened under a tree, uh, which was also um, a consequence of his remembering a tree, the rose apple tree that he sat under as, an, as a toddler um, when his father was plowing the fields. So, and of course he spent most of his life in the forest. So trees really were quite significant in his, in his awakening process. And we've been discovering that this is a process that I'm inclined not to use the word enlightenment because it, it, it suggests that it's a, a noun, it's a state of being, whereas awakening is a process. Uh, we have looked at um, these, we're looking at four stages of this process uh, and the first stage was leaving, leaving. We're always leaving. We never quite complete our leaving. So it's a process. And then a searching, a searching. It's a, it's a verb where we're searching. We continue to search. And here I'm, I'm called this phase uh, the great vow but it occurred to me after last yesterday's talk that this is really a turning, a turning and vowing uh, simultaneously. So there's a turning and there's a constant turning in our lives. Uh, we just don't turn, we get turned this way and then we turn back and then we're turning again toward the light. And then we, we kind of... <laughs> disappear and, and turn away. So, and then awakening, it doesn't stop. It, enlightenment is, a, is not a single event. It is a constant life experience. It's a constant process. And so <clears throat> we're at a, a stage now where trees are quite significant. Um, and again, I'm, I'm looking at Buddha's awakening process 
from a slightly different angle than it's typically uh, looked at, uh, bringing forward the earth, the natural world, trees in this case, as being an important element in his awakening process. I'm dedicating my words to trees today. I was brought up in a ghetto and I don't think I ever really saw a tree uh, until I was 20 years old. I, I, I saw what, what we might call specimen trees, uh, trees which were in concrete boxes, uh, not even in my neighborhood. They were up on a, on a raised, it was called the Grand Concourse. <laughs> it was separated from my neighborhood by a, a large stone wall. And up there, they had trees, but they were trees in boxes because it was an urban setting. So I'd, I really had never seen a, a true, real tree growing out of the earth. And when I came to Penn State as a graduate student, I remember riding up in the bus um, first time I was ever really away from an urban setting and saw it was, it was early fall when the semester was beginning and Pennsylvania, as many of you know, was just incredibly lush and green at that time of year. And I remember looking out of the windows of the bus and thinking, this is paradise. Uh, the, those, I, those were my words. This, this is paradise. Uh, I had, uh, uh, perhaps Buddha had some of that same feeling, having been raised in a palace with all these, we, we really didn't see much in the way of the natural world. He was just surrounded by human constructions. And so perhaps, of course, his, his journey in, in the woods uh, was also terrifying uh, in many ways, but he, that's where he lived. Um, trees, trees have taught me love and trust. When I first came to live in the woods uh, um, after graduating uh, from Penn State, I moved away and then moved back, but moved back into the woods. We had a, a little house on 40 acres of woods near, near here. And I was sure that there was a snake under every rock and a bear behind every tree. <laughs> And because I had no experience of being in the woods, but here was a totally, somehow I knew that this was the place I wanted to live. And it took me quite a while to trust, uh, to trust the trees, to trust the rocks, to trust the stream, to trust the brambles, 
uh, only by actually walking daily, hiking through the woods, um, learning that the world really is a safe place. Um, when my parents came to visit, first come, came to visit me when I was living in the woods, they would not drive down into the place that I was living in the woods because they thought it was the wilderness. It was only probably 400 feet from the highway. <laughs> but to them, anything, anything that didn't have asphalt and lights and the sounds of human civilization was wilderness. And that's sort of how I was brought up. So they were they were terrified and I had to slowly usher them down into the woods and they never quite lost their fear. But I did over the course of many years uh, come to regard trees and the forest and the woods as my home, feeling much more that I could be myself that I found comfort there, a trust there and love there uh, of, of all of those beautiful, our elders. Anybody have ever been to California and seen mm -hmm. the sequoias and, and the huge elders, uh, such, such a moving sense of respect for these, beings. And then of course the mistletoe pine, which is one of the oldest trees in existence, is just the opposite of the sequoias. It's just like gnarled little pine, pine tree that's small and uh, but really had endured uh, all of the <clears throat> storms and weather conditions uh, over hundreds of years. And it was interesting learning that it's the hardwoods that are less likely to survive. Uh, they're brittle, but the softwoods are the ones that, that bend, that are flexible. And so there's a certain affinity with the softness of, of the woods. And if you look at the Buddha, you see this is soft. There's nothing hard, nothing angular about this being. It's, it's all very soft and pliable and flexible and porous. So, and of course here, this floor, this floor comes from my old woods. This floor was harvested from cherry trees that had to be clear cut to make way for a highway. And all of these boards were harvested from the woods I used to live in. And so we're sitting, we're sitting on trees. <laughs> They're supporting us. And um, all of this wood all around, uh, all those, those handles on the doors, they all come from wood, 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 the trees. Tree, tree. Christ was nailed on a wooden cross. Yes. Wood is, 
The trees are really, really significant. Um, so we'll get to, to the rose apple tree. Um, we left Buddha yesterday, having disappeared from the palace, having searched with various teachers, um, with a group of ascetics who practiced austerities mainly on their bodies. So perhaps to release if the body is completely defiled and uh, starved, perhaps it would release some spiritual life. And this is not an uncommon practice uh, for fasting, spiritual fasting. Uh, uh, I think Miyoshin mentioned, you know, simplifying your life, uh, going into a monastery where you're basically withdrawing from, from all of the worldly um, pleasures and goods and uh, all that experience. It's a, it's a form of fasting, um, it, not feeding yourself all that stuff. Uh, that's out there in the world. So it's often if we if we starve ourselves, uh, if we become celibate, you know, if we if we uh, somehow withdraw from the body, we can release the spirit. So Buddha took that to an extreme, uh, as it was described in some of the accounts of his life. And you can see some of the images of him. This is all bones, just like a skeleton sitting, sitting there. Uh, and he was on the verge of death and he knew it. And trying to get a sense of what he was feeling, what he was going through, not just the externals of he did this, he did that, he did, he went here, he went there. But what was going on in here, in here? I was scared. But he kept on until the point where I'm feeling that he was totally exhausted. I know I've fasted for three weeks and there's a point at which you become really, really exhausted. Um, then after that, if, if you slowly come out of your fast, you have tremendous energy that is released, but that didn't what was not happening to Buddha. He just kept depriving himself working toward the point of completely expiring. And then I'm imagining that there was this element of total exhaustion. And what do you do when you're exhausted? Sit down. Sometimes you feel that. Here it's different. If 
you're sitting and exhausted and you have to stand up. But typically, when you are exhausted, you just sit down. So I think this must have been part of what happened with him, that he had to sit down, that there was, in a weird sense, a kind of inner wisdom in this exhaustion, which made him sit down. I can't do anything else. I can't move. I'm, I just, I, I just don't have the energy. So sometimes that's what has to happen. Like I know when when I get too wound up and too active and taking on too much, I usually break something like an arm or a leg. And it's like, okay, Mado, you didn't listen to what your body was telling you. So now I'm going to break you. I'm, I'm going to break your leg. So you will have to stop because you just, you can't do anything more. And so this may have been his body's inner wisdom, despite the fact that it was taken to an extreme, sit down. And so he, he made himself, he wasn't able to go online to Dharma crafts to get himself a nice buckwheat cushion. So, so he made himself a cushion of, of grass, of kusa grass. Again, right on the earth. And he sat down on that. And of course, uh, when he did sit down, something else happened. He was noticed by a young woman a farm girl who saw him and probably had some compassion for him and brought him some milk and honey. Sometimes it's, they say a porridge, uh, rice porridge, condensed milk, <laughs> whatever it was. it was. It was this bowl of nourishment for him. And he could have refused it, but he, he, he needed it. He needed, he, he, his body needed nourishment. And he was in touch with that and he received it. And it's interesting that it was a young woman who brought him this milk and honey, uh, that she was a farm girl, simple, a simple girl a feminine, feminine energy wasn't one of his uh, comrades, ascetic comrades who said, oh, you're looking really bad here, take this. No, actually they criticized him, macho, you know, like, you know, you look pudgy, you know. You <laughs> um, so this is, you could say, again, if we're looking at this metaphorically, this was a, fe a feminine side of him that knew, knew he, needed, he needed to take care of himself. 
it's maternal, it's our inner mother. Um, and we, we take care of ourselves. In Buddhist practice, there, this is called Roshan, maternal, parental mind. There's Daishin, magnanimous mind. Joshin, joyful mind. And Roshan, parental mind. All these three minds are really part of us. And out of his suffering, out of his near-death experience, parental mind, Roshan, rose up and took care, took care of him, had some food to eat. This act may have stimulated a memory a memory of when he was a child and what was this memory let's um, hear his own words I recall once when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, uh, uh, divine state, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening, I thought? Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to awakening. Then following on that memory came the realization. That is the path to awakening. So why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality? nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with the pleasure with a body, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But it is not easy to achieve that, men that pleasure with a body so extremely emaciated Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge. So I took some solid food, some rice and porridge. So when I had taken solid food, 
and regained strength. Then, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. But the pleasant feeling that arose in this way did not invade my mind or remain. So, he was remembering a time in his life when he was experiencing pleasure, joy, which had nothing in it of attachment. Nothing in it of, oh, this is so wonderful. I wish it would last forever. Like what I sometimes call hankering. <laughs> like I, I hanker for this. I'm, ha I'm hankering for this feeling. I, I once had it. And you know, very often we have this in our practice. We sit on the cushion and suddenly, I've got this feeling of pure joy. <laughs> Things have fallen away. I want it again. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> mm, that's not what Buddha remembered experiencing. That there was a joy that had no, I want more. I want it again. Where did it go? Let's look for it. <laughs> it was without attachment. You could say it was a form of innocence, which he had as a child. And maybe we can remember uh, a time. It's hard for me. I mean, my childhood was pretty awful. <laughs> but I think being in school, there was some, there were these moments of just enjoying that feeling of freedom of liberation of just being and while he was sitting under the rose apple tree not only and he was watching his father and all of the the uh the servants at the time plowing the fields for for spring planting and it was a beautiful day it was a sunny day and he was just there watching the show, <laughs> just watching the show and feeling this sense of uh, just being, just being alive in that place, taking, having his place there. As I've often described my sense of the world is, the forest is a friendly place. I have a, I have a place there. I have a, I have a home there. I feel at home there. And so this sense of being a child watching, watching all this show of the trees, the breeze, the sun, but also as the plow was churning the earth, 
he also saw the creatures that were dug up, the worms that were cut in half, the, the insects that were losing their homes, they were scurrying around, and also remembering this sense of compassion, of feeling for these beings that were actually being forced out of their homes. Uh, and this is so much about homecoming and home leaving and watching, perhaps identifying at some point with their sense, which was going to happen to him later on in life, that he was going to be churned up and, and feeling homeless, feeling moving into a state of suffering. So both the, the memory was not just of the memory of this pleasure, but also his heart was awakened even then to the suffering of beings who were being plowed up from their places. And so what I'm describing here, trying to describe is what I'm calling the great turning. And what is this great turning? It's the turning from looking for the answers, looking for reality, looking for liberation out there. This teacher, that teacher, um, these friends, these teachings, and then the memory. The memory is the great turning. It's the turning inward, the great turning inward. And man, is that hard. It's almost like muscular. I think I'll share his notion of muscular Zen to just, it's here. It's here, what I'm searching for is in here, not literally in here, but is this. We, we live in a world of, particularly in our modern world of experts. And some of us are studying to be experts in our fields, right? And we respect experts and if, we have a problem and we're confused or we're lost. We don't understand something. Let's check out, let's go online and check out the experts. We have a profound distrust of our own, of our own wisdom, our own sense of competence, our own expertise at these spiritual matters. That's one of the beauties of our, our um, lineage holder, our Kobachino. Trust yourself, trust this. Not to say we reject the experts, but that's not where our liberation is coming from. It's, it's got to come from in here. 
And it takes some time to recognize that because we do, we don't trust ourselves. We, we are born in, into a culture that teaches us that you don't know enough. You're not good enough. Go, go find somebody who knows more than you do. So he turned, he trusted that memory. He trusted his experience, even though it was way earlier in his life. It came up for him to help him know what he had to do. And he re reaffirmed that twice in his, in his mind. This is the path to awakening. This is that unshakable. <laughs> uh, and again, it was reaffirmed. It's never just once. It's got to be reaffirmed again and again and again. As Dogen says, you know, Buddhas go on being Buddha endlessly. It never stops. And what doesn't, what, what is it that makes it important? important that it happens again and again and again. It's what we've been talking about as doubt. It's, it's our partner. It's the partner of certainty, of trust. It's, it's the kind of, use the, the wood, wooden metaphor, it's the kind of walking stick of our, our spiritual practice. So we grab on to the handle of our walking stick and firmly grab onto it and start walking almost like a blind person. But we're, we're going, we're following the path. But this, the bottom is doubt. It's kind of poking around in the underbrush, you know, it's like, I don't know, where is it? Where's the next step? Where am I going? I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm holding so that the two go together. The, the trust and the doubt. Mm, 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 mm. And so it's, it's one, it's a one piece guide, guidance. This, this thing that we hold on to, we call the teachings. And we walk through the, the jungle of life. Sometimes very friendly. I love Pennsylvania. Woodlands are so friendly. California is a little bit different. <laughs> and there are other Wood, woods that are really different. Pennsylvania is so comforting. They're rolling hills and um, green lush trees and beautiful fall colors. And it's all kind of made for us. <laughs> uh, you can feel at home there. So this is the forest that we, that we navigate. And I want to um, end 
um, this particular stage with a poem. This is the stage of turning inward with trust and determination that this seat that I've made for myself, this seat of grass that I've placed on the earth, nurtured by my feminine side, my, my, my parental mind, my maternal mind. Uh, this is not an endurance test. This is the natural expression of an exhausted person. <laughs> it, being, being human is exhausting. It truly, it's exhausting. And every now and then we have, we have to sit down and get grounded and you know, rest, stop. And so we do this with the support of all beings in the midst as in, as in Buddha's case, having been lost and now sitting down and being available, not sitting down with a book, with a computer, with a friend, with a teacher, sitting alone and basically naked on the earth. So this is a poem called Lost by a fellow named David Wagoner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. The forest found Buddha. and called him by his name, Buddha. <laughs>